Geico presents sharing versus oversharing. Earlier this week, Claire Tippins shared a princess nickname generator, three pictures of her dog wearing a tutu, and two online quizzes, including what candy is your dream castle made of? Claire, your sharing has tipped the sugar scale and turned into oversharing. But have no fear, princess. Geico has something worth sharing with your internet kingdom, like how you could save hundreds on your car insurance just by visiting geico.com. No magic wand required. Geico, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, Chuck Morse. Uh, Chuck Morse speaks. Welcome to the program. We are scheduled to be joined shortly by, um, we're going to be discussing wealth uh, inequality and uh, and other such subjects with uh, Professor James J. Brousseau, who's Pace University professor, host of a documentary on the philosophy and ethics of wealth inequality, that being the Wealth Inequality Workshop, which investigates the philosophy and ethics of wealth uh, distribution. James, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Hi, Chuck. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Uh, very well, thank you. Uh, well, you are approaching the question of uh, economic uh, inequality from a philosophical perspective. You seem to use as a model for your approach the philosophy of uh, John Rawls. Uh, let's just talk a little bit about um, your philosophical methodology before we delve into the subject. Sure. Uh, my my uh, background is in the history of philosophy. Uh, and so I tend to take a traditional view of these things. Um, I think that uh, with respect to wealth inequality, or uh, when we talk in philosophical and ethical terms, we frequently talk about wealth distribution-related uh, debate, discussion. Um, uh, I think when I talk about that, uh, it's right that, that John Rawls is an important figure, uh, but he is far from the, the only figure. And I don't think it's even quite right to say that he is, is the central figure. Um, there's sort of, sort of stepping back just for a second, there's sort of two uh, different ways of uh, practicing philosophy sort of on the global level. There's what's called an analytic tradition and a continental tradition. Um, on the analytic side, which is most common in the United States and in, and in England, uh, the central philosophers that people bring to talk about this issue uh, would be uh, Robert Nozick and, uh, as you mentioned, John Rawls. Uh, on the European side, which um, I'm a bit more comfortable with because that tends to have a bit more of a, a historical bent to it, uh, there isn't a, a set of um, standard references. However, uh, in my case, uh, I am uh, referring quite a bit to uh, the philosophy of Georges Bataille and also that of uh, Gilles Deleuze, who are both recent French philosophers. I think that the analysis, from what I can tell from your um, your wealth inequality workshop, is to take a look at the phenomena very clinically, and in a sense remove it from uh, societal and even human um, configurations, and just to try to scientifically view it, which I think is quite interesting. Um, what uh, what do you account for? A, what we hear, at least in politics today, and I'm not necessarily endorsing it, but um, they say that in this country there is a growing gap of wealth inequality. Well, I think that that's, I, I think that that's probably simply objectively uh, that that would seem to be the case. 
Um, so I'm, I'm not sure exactly. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what more can be added to that. Uh, when we talk in philosophy about wealth inequality, we tend to talk in two different ways. We talk about what's called vertical inequality and also horizontal inequality. Vertical inequality is simply the difference between uh, the wealthiest, say, the, the, the wealthiest person in, um, let's talk about a company. Let's say the CEO of Walmart, what this person earns and accumulates and the wealth he finally has versus the earnings and accumulations of um, an average worker, right? And so as that distance grows, we say that vertical wealth inequality is growing. That is, the distance between the hyper-rich and the rest in any one particular business or pursuit is increasing. Um, we also talk about horizontal wealth inequality, which is slightly different. Uh, horizontal wealth inequality is the idea that it's not just that in certain fields of activity or certain areas of our existence there is increasing inequality. It's also that the areas or fields or with respect to simply the number of people that are exposed to radical inequality, that too is increasing. So, for example, um, one could say something like this, uh, probably in that I'm sort of inventing a basic example. Uh, let's imagine something like a rock and roll star in the 1950s, right? This, uh, this person would have a limited ability to gain a tremendous wealth advantage over, say, your garden variety wedding singer, right? Um, why? Because in the 1950s, the, the way in which this person could earn money, um, say, discs had just begun to be pressed. They were quite inexpensive. Uh, to a certain extent, they, they were limited to the kind of money they could earn from concerts, which might, in fact, be greater than that of a wedding singer. But it wasn't exorbitantly different. Whereas, by contrast, today, uh, thanks to something like, let's say, YouTube, someone like Justin Bieber can come out of nowhere, play a few songs, post them for free on the web, and a few years later, the wealth difference between Justin Bieber and we can imagine another cute guy who's just a wedding singer in Nashville, um, the, the wealth difference there is exorbitant, right? So we can say that over time, perhaps we've seen both an increase in wealth inequality in terms vertically, in terms of the wealthiest to the, the common, and also horizontally, that is, the number of people who are exposed within their professional lives and their economic lives to this kind of inequality is, all, is also growing. Uh, so I think that both those things appear to me to be true. Um, right. so of course, when we talk, when we talk philosophically, uh, we're less interested in sort of the, the facts on the ground than we are in, in the way we should think about these facts and how we can approach them. You know, I think that as imperfect a model as it is, and naturally it's imperfect because humanity is imperfect, the American system has been one that um, has had less inequality. And by inequality... I think it should first be stated, I would suggest that it's natural. We are not equal. You know, we're equal, we're born equal, we have equal rights under the law, we die equally, we all have a soul. But in the material sense, we're different because we have different levels of skill. I mean, a, a history teacher might not be equal to Henry Kissinger, or, you know, I mean, or a science teacher is not equal to Einstein. In other words, you know, a, base, a high school baseball coach is not equal to Kalia Stremsky. You know, we have different levels of skill, and, and as such, we, we you, know, uh, you know, economic wealth is just simply a, a byproduct of that. It's an expression of it, at least in the American free market system where we don't have, you know, these uh, legal inherited, you know, restrictions that, that preserve people's aristocratic positions. You know, we have to compete in this country, and as such, we have, I think, uh, 
the resulting greater wealth for everyone at all levels and less inequality. However, it seems like that is changing, at least in recent decades. Right. Well, when we when we um, sort of stepping back for a second, I, I think that in, in practical terms and in economic terms, uh, your argument is clearly right. People have different levels of ability. Uh, though when we talk in philosophical terms, we tend not to take that step, at least not immediately, for the following reason. Uh, what counts as ability is extraordinarily difficult to define. That is, uh, we could imagine someone who was born in the United States and was a tremendous had a tremendous ability to hit a very fast ball with a very thin bat. That is, it's a good baseball player, right? Well, this person would have a tremendous ability in the United States, but imagine this same person had been born in, I'm struggling to think of a country which definitely does not have baseball. Let's just imagine right. um, Madag- in Madagascar or something, right? Uh, then all sure. of a sudden, this, ab- this ability, which, pr- which presumably is significant here in the United States, uh, is non-existent because there's no way to express that ability. Um, so we tend not to... We tend not to start with that, with that notion of, of difference in terms of difference of ability because that, to a significant extent, is, is uh, centered in your, your cultural reality. Um, however, an argument very similar to the one you're making uh, can be made and is the, a standard way to take a first step against um, the ethics of equality. Um, let, let me just say very quickly uh, that when philosophers approach this issue, uh, we tend to approach the issue in terms of the value or the ideal of either equality or freedom. Uh, and we don't tend to see those two ideals as in conflict. Rather, we tend to think that these are two different ways of talking about uh, wealth distribution. And I think that what happens frequently in, in sort of common discussions is that people, some, you have a situation where sometimes people are working within, even without perhaps knowing it fully, uh, a structure of the ethics of equality, or a, a sort of logical structure, and while others are working with a kind of logical structure of the ethics of freedom. Uh, and as a result, they're speaking in a certain sense almost different languages. And so for this uh-huh. reason, we end up sometimes with disputes about wealth distribution or wealth inequality, uh, which are irresolvable, not because uh, the, the, the solution is simply not reached for lack of work, but instead because the, the, those who are debating the question literally cannot talk to each other. Um, so right. as I say, there are these two, two approaches. And what I'm trying to do with my project is, is I'm trying to outline what these two approaches are, outline them clearly so that people can get a sense not for which way is, is preferable, but instead get a sense for what the underlying assumptions are in the way they are talking about wealth and equality so that they can understand their own position and understand that of others. That's, as a philosopher, that's generally what we're aiming at, right? That we're, we, are, we are people who try to frame things and understand things as opposed to resolve things, right? That, that's just part of that's, right. no, that's just that. the job requirement. All right, my guess, um, my but, guess but, but then if I, if, I could just, yep. if, I could, if I could just add then, wrap up this, this notion, because I think that you made a very good point about this difference between difference of ability. Now, I'd just like to say how we think about that in, in more properly philosophical terms. Um, in properly philosophical terms, what we would say is something like the following. Um, let's imagine a society, not so much where people are, um, have more ability or less ability, but let's imagine a society where, first of all, everybody is completely equal. Right? We live in the same apartment. Uh, every week we get from the government, let's say, uh, a bag of necessities and luxuries. And in this bag, we have our bread and our eggs. And maybe we get some luxuries. Maybe we get some chocolate and some wine, etc., we all live exactly and entirely equally, right? Now, 
what, what is going to happen in this kind of society, let's say that uh, you and I happen to live next to each other in one of these buildings. Uh, what's going to happen in this society uh, is we're going to start talking to, to each other, and it may turn out that, that it's like you like chocolate, and I, I really like wine. And so we look into our weekly bags, and I say to you, look, I will give you my chocolate if you give me your wine. And we make this deal. Now, are you and I better off than we were? Yes, we are. So Mm -hmm. in that situation, because people are better off, equality has already been ruined. It's a strange and odd situation because no one, in a sense, is worse off, right? There's no one who lost anything. It's just that you and I end up better than we were, and so logically, it simply follows that there must be inequality, right? Because before we were all equal the same. Now you and I are better off. So now you and I are above the rest. Um, so if you start with that kind of scenario and you want to advocate a pure or a strong or a strict equality, right, then you're going to have to say the following. Look, either we have to prohibit these different desires. That is, we can't allow you to like chocolate and me to like wine. Or we have to prohibit the free exchange of our various products. Now, either way, whether we're prohibiting the different desires, and this would be connected with the idea that we have different abilities, we're just different kinds of people, we're just different, right? Or whether we, we prohibit free exchange, either way, we're going to need some people to enforce this prohibition. And as soon as we have that, as soon as you need an enforcer, now you have inequality regardless because the enforcers, they get their way and no one else does, right? The, the, the people who are in charge. Uh, so, so there's a problem, there's a fundamental problem with the ethics of equality. And that is that it's, it's burdened by an internal difficulty. It can't get past that. Right? So then when people want to talk about equality, they need to find different ways of expressing that value. And that's some of what I, uh, what I investigate in the, uh, in the workshop. Okay, very interesting. Um, I guess it's James J. Busso is the host of the Wealth Inequality Workshop. He's a a Pace University professor. Uh, James, you know, I think that this entire discussion is about something that is impossible, which is equality. There's no such thing as equality, for better or for worse. We can't be equal because we're not equal, and political attempts to try to create equality have resulted in some of the most evil societies ever known to man, going all the way back. Um, you know, I mean, the idea of having an absolute equal system is a, is a system and a way of life that would be so evil and so beyond anyone's imagination that it's impossible to contemplate. It would mean that we would have to give up all of the institutions that make us unequal, like freedom, like love, like family, like faith, like property, like the right to trade in goods and services, like sovereignty. I mean, these are all things that, in a sense, we're defining an entity, we're defining a property, whatever that would be, whether real or abstract, and that definition by nature is going to be unequal. So the question is, how do you have a society which results in less inequality, uh, where there are more people participating at all of the levels in which they're able to or lucky enough to participate? And when I talk about um, accomplishments, you know, it, it's, it's a broader question than the baseball player in Madagascar because, uh, you know, it has to do with culture. It has to do with luck. It has to do with energy and personal drive. I mean, I don't think Albert Einstein, for example, is probably any, has any higher an IQ than many college uh, science professors. 
but he applied himself. He had a circumstance, some of which might have been out of his control, some of which was his vision, to make something out of it and therefore to, uh, to think differently and to invent. I mean, uh, Bill Gates didn't invent the Internet. He actually, though, had enough foresight and vision to put together a business that would harness that which had already been invented and then improve on it to the point where he changed the world. So, you know, in a sense, I guess what I'm getting at is that uh, America is, is, as an example, as a template, and as imperfect as it is, is an example historically of a society that has reduced inequality because it's based on freedom. And that freedom and equality can't be separated. It's it's sort of like this dichotomy which tries to separate faith and science. It's a false dichotomy. Or it tries to uh, separate economy and morality. That's something that Adam Smith did, and that was a big mistake. These things don't exist separately. It's not, you know, these aren't petri dish, you know, science projects. I mean, this is a a part of a greater mosaic of, of existence. Right, and and I would I would just sort of add two points to that. Um, the the first is uh, we I think that we should be careful to avoid simply concluding from the outset that inequality itself is necessarily bad or wrong. I mean, it might not be, right? I mean, there's no right. reason to necessarily yeah, to necessarily believe that we should not have inequality, right? Now, if you want to come at ethic the ethics of wealth distribution from the side of the value of equality. Yes, you are going to struggle against the notion of inequality. However, uh, we, I said at the beginning that we can come from two different directions, the equality side and the freedom side. If we come from the freedom side, then there is no intrinsic, um, uh, there is no intrinsic dismissal of the idea of inequality itself. There's no reason why we consider it from the beginning to be good or bad. It might be good. It might be bad. It's like fire, right? And if, if, right. It might be good in some circumstances or bad in other circumstances. So when we come at these kinds of issues in terms of freedom in, in philosophy, um, normally what we, we try and say is something like the following. We say, look, the, the highest value that we have uh, coming from the freedom side is individual autonomy and liberty. Right? So when, right. We look at wealth, when we look at wealth as distribution and inequality, we ask ourselves the following question, not is inequality good or bad, because we don't care. We instead ask ourselves, does wealth inequality to the degree it exists does it hinder or serve the ideal of freedom itself? Right? And I think that you can say that in some cases, I think that you're uh, making some good points. I think that in a certain sense, you can say that, look, uh, it's, it's because we individuals have the freedom to apply themselves, to try and experiment with one kind of economic uh, activity and then another and make themselves in one or another way in the world, however they want to make and create themselves, right? Uh, it's, because they, it's because there is some inequality already existence in the marketplace. Uh, that we have a kind of impetus or we have a, a kind of direction or purpose that we can give to this mode of self-invention, right? Um, so in that mm-hmm. case, we, we would say, look, inequality, I, th- I think this is kind of the line you're, you're moving down, inequality is fundamentally good. Um, right. But then on the other hand, and coming from the same philosophical perspective, we, we would also say, look, there are probably, uh, well, not there are probably, there are almost certainly cases and in in instances and places uh, where, inequality, where inequality does not serve the purpose of freedom or, in, or, or incite it. Instead, uh, inequality oppresses freedom to some extent. Um, I, I can give you kind of, kind of a quick example. I lived in, uh, I sort of saw both of these two sides, and it, 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 sometimes it's easier to understand, I think, these things in a culture which is not your own. 
Uh, and I lived in Mexico for about 10 years, and I learned quite a bit about how these, this dynamic functions there because there's a strange dichotomy which exists in that country, which is one of really very maximum high-level freedom. Uh, which does allow individuals to find their own way and create themselves in the world. But there's also freedom. Sometimes the individual initiative there, it, gets, it goes so far and gets so out of control that it ends up crushing in the individuality that we uh, want to help if we come from this the freedom perspective. So let me give you an example. Uh, Mexico is extremely corrupt. Uh, and I worked for a while with uh, a group of us, and we invested in, bu in buying some older buildings, and there was an architect, an engineer, and so on, and we were re remodeling these buildings, um, and just like in the United States, inspectors would come around and uh, say, look, you have this or this and this problem, uh, and in Mexico, this is very simple to take care of. Uh, we pulled a 500 peso note out of our wallet. It's about 50 bucks. We, he, he, showed, he showed us the... Um, the uh, the infraction, he gave us a little piece of paper, we folded the paper around the note, gave the note back to him, and he disappeared. That was the end of it, right? So it, individuals right. could do whatever they wanted down there in terms of architecture and building, which is really terrific and wonderful. That's why one of the reasons why so many of the best architects in the world today are, in fact, Mexican, following in um, uh, Baragoni, uh, after La Garota, and these, uh, these leaders in the field. Uh, why? Because in Mexico, you can pretty much do whatever you want. Um, and right. that kind of freedom does create a tremendous and, and beautiful architectural tradition in the country. Uh, but on the other hand, it's also true um, that because there is that freedom, which is based on simple corruption, um, because there is that massive in individual freedom, uh, those who have the resources, 500 pesos, 50 bucks in Mexico, that's, that's decent money. Um, so right. to be, for us to be able to pay that out like that, that set us already – uh, significantly apart from, from others in that culture. And I think we were so far apart, uh, so far above financially, right, uh, that many of those others in that culture were not a, simply not able to participate in this, um, in, in, in this activity. So in a certain sense, uh, the individuality or the, the possibilities that they would have to develop, say, again, we're just using the example of architecture here, right, to develop themselves as architects in their own buildings uh, is limited because the inequality in the country is so great. It's the, the same inequality which made the uh, bureaucrats desperate to take our money and let us do what we want also consigned 90% of the population to a reality where they were almost unable to do anything, right? The schools didn't work and so on. Um, right. So that's an example of how uh, in a different culture, um, inequality can both serve freedom, but it can also oppress it. Uh, and then... Uh, uh, that's the kind of dynamic that a philosopher would want to investigate, right? And I think what you're doing is you want to bring that kind of idea around and say, well, how could we apply that to the United States culture? Well, uh, let me just, let's think about this for a minute. I mean, I think that this, the, this gets into a very false dichotomy, which is the claim of, of so-called unfettered capitalism, which is as false an idea as communism. It's not, in, in other words, almost anarchy. Really, in, in the classic sense, and as, as imperfect as it is, a free market system, a capitalist system, can only exist equitably if it has certain rules, if it has certain goalposts that are applied equally. You know, it's kind of like a football game. You know, you have the goalposts, you have the rules, you have, and once you put those rules out, then you let them go, and, you, you know, you compete. And, and that's really the function of, of, a, of a free market system. It's not unfettered. Also, the other factor that was expunged by people like Adam Smith, a brilliant philosopher, but he made some big mistakes, 
is that he removed the spiritual restraints. He removed faith, which has a personal and an overall restraining quality on unfettered um, trade and, and, and business. It gives a sense that there are consequences, not only in this life, but in the afterlife, to, to such actions. So, you know, in a more, you know, a capitalist society also needs to be a moral society that has rules put in place so that people can compete in the open market and become successful, but at the same time understand that there are restraints with regard to how that success might step on other people and, uh, and uh, how they're adhering to a greater code of morality. But another misconception that I see, and this is common and this is a mistake made by Marx, is this idea of wealth as being a finite commodity. It has to be redistributed, therefore. If we view wealth as a finite commodity, then it does have to be probably redistributed because there's only just so much of it. But the fact is that wealth is infinite. You know, wealth is as, as vast as the human imagination. It's a, wealth is created by, by accomplishments or by, you know, harnessing various forces in nature and creating things that improve life or for that matter, hurt life. Either way, wealth is something that's created. It doesn't just exist. It's not a commodity. So if you're going to redistribute it, and the result and, and the demonstrable and documentable result is that you create more poverty. And a good example of that right now is Venezuela. There you have a country that is uh, you know, as about as socialistic as you can get in, in our time. They don't need people can't even get toilet paper. And that's one of the richest countries in the world in terms of natural resources. I think they're number four or number five in terms of oil production. So when you have a system where you have, you know, a, a laws that, you know, as Jefferson said, a nation of laws and not men, where objective laws are, are there and applied, then you can then let people go and let them create wealth. And the more wealth they create, the better off we all are because they are creating. I mean, Bill Gates and, and the late Steve Jobs, they created wealth. They created money. They didn't make money. I mean, they, they, you know, the, the Federal Reserve probably had to turn on the printing presses that came up with them. I mean, they created the fortunes, not just for themselves, but for people all the way down to the clerk who works in the store. I mean, they created, the, you know, dollars, I mean, which made everybody richer on all levels. They did this because they harnessed certain ideas that, were, that they saw before them, and they were able to bring those ideas to fruition. So, you know, wealth is not a finite commodity. It's infinite. What do you think? Well, I, 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 think that, I think that's certainly true. And then also, I think that to an extent, what um, the, the points you're making can be uh, drawn together to create a kind of line between, say, the way someone who's involved in economics and politics might talk about this from the way someone who's involved in uh, a philosophical or ethical approach might talk about this. Um, so coming from the, the philosophical and ethical side, we would say certainly it may be true that wealth, that wealth produces more wealth, but we would say then, remember that we're always referring these things back, back to uh, the higher value of either equality or freedom. So we say, look, um, is it true that this increasing amount of wealth is increasing human freedom? If so, then it's good. Um, and it might be, but, but then on the other hand, uh, I think it, it could, sometimes it seems to me, I mean, I live in New York City, I see people who work, you know, they're up at 630, they're walking across the plaza in front of my house, and they're going home at 830 at night. Uh, they're producing wealth, no doubt. Um, but at some point, you have, to, you have to ask, 
well, wait a minute, is all this wealth that's being produced as they go back to their $5 million Tribeca lofts and so on? I mean, is all this wealth that they're producing for themselves, uh, is this it's just generating uh, what presumably they want from a philosophical uh, perspective, which would be some, some kind of individual autonomy or freedom, the ability to create one um, uh, for a man or woman, to create him or herself, how she, he or she wants to be in the world. Is that what's actually happening? Um, and then, so, so, so we would not want to stop an, an economist and a politician might want to focus very tightly upon the question of wealth production itself. But when we talk about philosophy, we don't stop there. We take that extra step and say, well, wait a minute. Um, is this wealth producing human freedom or is it producing equality? And in fact, it might be. It's certainly in some cases it is producing freedom. And in other cases, I think that it, it might not be. Then we would have to talk about those in case-by-case basis. So what I'm trying to say is that there's, there's this different way of discussing the issue, which kind of identifies a philosophical approach and separates it from the uh, the political, the economic approach. It's not that one is um, preferable to the other. It's just that I, I'm trying to make the point these are just different ways of thinking about the issue. Um, and one thing I like about mm. the philosophical approach is that it does tend to break us out a little bit of some of the um, kind of calcified uh, lines we've drawn through our society in terms of, say, Democrats or Republicans and so on. But, of course, there are also reasons to go along those uh, traditional political lines as well. You have to do, have to do mm-hmm. both sides, I suppose. Right. Okay. My guest is James J. Brousseau. He's the host of the uh, Wealth Inequality Workshop. And uh, I guess, James, you know, I think that uh, the creation of wealth is good for society, and the inequality is not because of the creation of wealth. I think it's because of uh, of politics. Uh, It's because of policies that have uh, made it more difficult for people to, um, to get upwardly mobile at all levels. Uh, you know, onerous regulation against business, corruption, sort of the fact, you mentioned Mexico, again, one of the richest countries in the world, and yet you have systemic poverty. It's because of of, of people who are running uh, governments and are doing so in a way that um, help them not create wealth, but get wealth and do so in a way that's dishonest. I mean, we're not talking about... um, you know, the actual, you know, creation of wealth based on skill or idea or whatnot, we're talking about transferring wealth to them. I mean, when a communist country takes over, they transfer all the wealth to, um, you know, to the, quote, people, but in fact you have every communist dictator from from Lenin all the way down to uh, Ho Chi Minh and Mao and the rest. These people lived a fabulously lavish life, one that would make most American corporate heads blush. But, of course, they didn't actually own the wealth. You know, the wealth was owned by the state, and the state decided who got to enjoy the wealth, and they viewed that they were being rewarded because they were so-called champions of the little people. The fact is they created poverty to a, a level that we can't even imagine in this country. But, yeah, why is it in this country that, as you say, you have, you know, people, they're basically wage slaves. I mean, people, you know, I can speak to that. I mean, what is it about? I think it's not a, a, a problem of the creation of wealth. Wealth is good. It's a problem of um, government and uh, and laws that that and the, the way we issue our, our, our finance, our, our monetary, our currency. There's a lot of things. It's a complicated subject, probably too big for us to get into now. But there are political reasons why there's such inequality. It's not because of the creation of wealth. Right. Well, then I would come back to that, and I would say, well, let's look at some of the regulations that, that we impose upon our uh, our economic uh, activities, and we say, and I would say, well, uh, 
the first question I would want to ask about those regulations is why is it that we're imposing them? Uh, because there are two radically different reasons why we might want to um, set up restrictions upon economic activity. Uh, going back to the beginning, I said one of those reasons would be in the name of equality, right? So this would be re regulation in, in the name basically of redistribution because we want to maximize equality because that's the highest ideal. Um, on the other side, the same regulations, you know, the very same regulations, may be imposed at the same time, but simply by different people under a different flag. And that other flag would be uh, individual freedom. I think that it, this goes back to that Mexican case. Um, because there, were, there was so little regulation there in Mexico, uh, the final result was not a maximizing of human freedom. It was a maximizing of human freedom only for a few of us. Uh, others did not, uh, did not have that, that, the luxury to be able to create themselves as they liked. So the, same, the very same regulations, and again, this is how a philosopher would kind of approach this, the very same regulations may be imposed in the name of equality or in the name of maximizing freedom. And they would need to be then evaluated in one or the other way in those terms. Um, so that, that's a different way of looking at the regulations than, say, an economist would look at them by saying, well, does, does this regulation maximize economic growth? Or a politician, which might say, does this regulation maximize uh, votes for me in the voting booth next November? Right? The philosopher will say, uh, does this regulation coincide with its stated purpose of maximizing individual freedom or maximizing equality? Um, and then the question about, well, what's better, equality or freedom? There's no real answer to that question. Um, that, and I think that this is returning well, back to the very beginning of what we said. They exist. They're not mutually exclusive. I mean, I think that... Um, you know, equality or more equality. I mean, there's no such thing as we've talked about of real equality, but a greater opportunity, an opportunity for upward mobility. That's something that is part of freedom, I would suggest. And that uh, things that try to forcibly redistribute wealth have created a, a lessening of wealth for everybody because it squelches creativity and it squelches freedom. Uh, in a sense, like the, the part of Mexico that results in that kind of freedom, that part's good. The problem comes in when you have a government that doesn't operate within a constitution. There's no system of laws. There's no system of a separate judiciary. They don't have the institutions of freedom that the United States has to the extent we have them and to the extent we've been able to hang on to them. I mean, things, you know, institutions like private property at all levels. The ability to purchase stock, which is actually something created right here in Boston, where I am, by Fidelity, which allowed working people to own portions of companies through mutual funds. That made people wealthy, and, and these were you know, blue-collar working people. You know, things like labor laws and things that, you know, that, that promote the, uh, the internal um, you know, business of working people. You know, regulation of, of uh, foreign trade, regulation of immigration. These are things that preserve wealth for the nation. You know, the nation state operating in the interests of the people of that nation. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I know that I might sound a bit nationalistic here, but, you know, the nation state is more, is something, I mean, I, I'm not a, you know, it doesn't necessarily be a small government thing. It's a nation that's operating in the interests of free enterprise within that nation. Right, and then I think one way to way to think about sort of sort of coming to what you said from uh, from where I'm starting, um, this this sort of makes me think of the idea. Uh, frequently, frequently when we think about uh, individual freedom, we we think of it to use uh, I've referred to the idea of fire previously. Um, 
you could also think of it in a certain sense, and this is the way something I discuss in the the uh, the documentary. Um, George Bataille has a, a, a very interesting idea about it, what he calls an, an accursed share of, of economics. And his idea is that uh, things that, that work in the economic world uh, can sometimes work too well. That is, they can be beyond perfect, beyond sufficient. Um, and an, an example that I, I frequently use is somewhat abstract, or well, it's concrete, but I'll, I will bring this back around to the economy momentarily, um, is, is something like, like, like cigarettes. I mean, anyone who's, who's been stuck smoking cigarettes knows right, that you, you start out smoking the first one, and you don't really enjoy it, but for some reason, whatever, you smoke your second and the third, uh, and then gradually this kind of addiction grows, and because you smoke two today, you want four tomorrow, and because you want four tomorrow, you want eight the next day, and so on, uh, until the logical conclusion of this is, and this is what Bataille calls an excess economy, the logical conclusion of this is that the desire you have to smoke cigarettes ends up suffocating or destroying your ability to smoke cigarettes, or stated slightly differently, but the desire to smoke cigarettes destroys or obliterates itself um, as your lungs are, are ruined and you're not able to inhale any longer, right? Uh, so there is this kind of notion of, or this, this kind of dynamic that exists um, and this is especially true on the, on, on the freedom side, where we can say, look, there's a kind of freedom which is so robust, so vivid, so powerful, uh, that it literally outruns itself and, in a sense, turns back and destroys itself, right? Just like the desire to smoke can, can, can turn back and destroy itself. Um, so I think that then right. what you would want to say about these kinds of regulations and so on is that a way to think about these things is it's kind of a way of putting the brakes on or putting the control on, on freedom. And that's an interesting dynamic, right? That the reason we have prohibitions is in order to enable individual liberty or individual freedom, um, which is, again, it's very different than the person who would put those kinds of prohibitions in place because they want equality. So in any case, so kind of wrapping that up a little bit, I think no, I mean, that, it's interesting. Yeah, a, a lot, lot of the know, points you're making are about how, how, freedom, how freedom limits or regulates itself. It's very important, otherwise it could destroy itself. It, it's a curious reality. Right, I mean, you're getting into a question of how, how we can have freedom and um, have a society that is more equitable, but at the same time, we expect our society to regulate and moderate sin. Now, of course, in our modern world, sin is viewed as things that are unhealthy, like cigarettes or fattening food or, you know, air pollution. But, you know, we could broaden that definition to a more biblical one. But either way, those are, those are restraints that are put in ultimately to, to, to preserve the overall freedom of a society. And they are put in, in an American context, by local governments because they are an expression of the people who elect legislators who make those sorts of laws. You know, we want to have laws to protect the innocence of children, for example. There's nothing in the Constitution that says this, but, you know, we, we expect it. It's not not in the Constitution, and we regulate such things, preferably at the local level, because that's where people live, and that's where people, you know, feel the, the direct effect. And that's part of the whole picture. That's setting the goalposts so that then people can be free. You put restrictions on cigarettes, you publicly come out and you use what Teddy Roosevelt called the bully pulpit by, by identifying the, the evils of smoking and the dangers to your health, and then you let the free market go, and you let people, you know, and you restrict it to young people, and then ultimately, you, you know, it's a free choice. It's not a productive force in the real sense. I mean, Frederick Hayek, the Austrian economist, get in, gets into this in, in, in his, in his uh, treatise that... that uh, 
you know, people make money if a house burns down as much as they make money if you build a house. You know, there's a negative incentive as well. That's just part of the, that's the price we pay for freedom. I mean, that's a free market. Right, and, I, and again, I think that, that kind of the the underlining point is from uh, in terms of wealth inequality and their philosophy is is this this notion that the prohibitions themselves, if we're going to come at it from that freedom side, the prohibitions themselves uh, are not limits to freedom, but rather that which enables individual freedom. Exactly. Um, and, 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 and so there are these curious, oh, there's, curious there's, a, there's this curious dynamic there at the heart of freedom. There are other curious dynamics too on the. On the equality side, when we look carefully at these in, in intellectual terms, it, um, the, but, you know, there are the ironies. But in a world and, and the, the creation of legislation that limits the freedom to sin have to be balanced by the right to sin and then deal with the consequences of your sin. You know, those are, that's the art and science of government. That's why we set up uh, legislatures to, to weigh and measure these, these factors. Anyways, uh, James, we're reaching toward the end of the program, so I'd like you to... Uh, Take this opportunity to let uh, my listeners know where they can uh, get involved and where they can hear the Wealth Inequality Workshop and, and whatever else you want people to know about. Sure. The Wealth Inequality Workshop is uh, is a documentary. Uh, it's made in cooperation with, with several sponsors. It is available at the Wealth Inequality Workshop, that's all one word, dot org. Uh, there's also a, a, a podcast version, which is also available there. Uh, and there is an app which will appear at some point in the Apple Store that I'm not certain exactly when. We'll have to see when I get word of that. It might be there already. I haven't gotten the email. Perhaps it's there. I'm not sure. But in any case, but the, the main documentary is located at uh, wealthinequalityworkshop.org. Um, so we Very hope that good. people Listen. can uh, participate. And, and there's also a thought experiment associated with that and a discussion board. So we hope that people who are interested might want to take a look at that. No, I, I recommend it highly. It's very thought-provoking. Uh, James J. Brousseau, Pace University professor, host of the documentary on the philosophy and ethics of wealth inequality, wealth inequality workshop. James, I want to thank you for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me, Zach. All right, take care. All right, so I just before we sign off, I should mention as a quick shameless plug that my books are available at Amazon.com. Just put my name in the server, Chuck Morse, M-O-R-S-E, like Morse code, and you shall see my books come up in front of you. Uh, my latest book, which was just uh, released uh, last week, Communism is Not Dead, The Communist Conspiracy in the 21st Century. I am proud to see this published. I, I really think that the – just check out the cover. It's beautiful. I'm, I'm very pleased. I hired this uh, graphic artist from Pakistan, actually, who created this fantastic cover. That's worth the price right there. It's two bucks. It's actually free right now. I think for the first 50 copies. So check it out. It's on Amazon or Amazon Kindle. Uh, put my name in the server, Chuck Morse, M-O-R-S-E. We'll go to uh, put in the uh, title of the book, Communism is Not Dead, The Communist Conspiracy in the 21st Century. Again, I want to thank James J. Brousseau for joining me this afternoon. Case University professor, very interesting uh, project you're involved in, Wealth Inequality workshop.org that's wealth inequality workshop.org thank you for listening everyone and have a nice day
Geico presents sharing versus oversharing. Earlier this week, Claire Tippins shared a princess nickname generator, three pictures of her dog wearing a tutu, and two online quizzes, including what candy is your dream castle made of? Claire, your sharing has tipped the sugar scale and turned into oversharing. But have no fear, princess. Geico has something worth sharing with your internet kingdom, like how you could save hundreds on your car insurance just by visiting geico.com. No magic wand required. Geico, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.